All right. My, my guest today is uh, a pretty interesting character, first of many things. Um, he was the first Australian MMA fighter to make his way inside the UFC. He was the first Australian fighter to get a win inside the UFC. First Australian fighter to fight for a title inside the UFC. One of the first Australian BJJ practitioners to be awarded his black belt. He's the owner of a million gyms, trainer and owner of King's Academy MMA, uh, Fox Sports UFC analyst. A lot of things here, I could keep rattling him off. He's a keen photographer, he's a part-time kayaker, he's the king of rock and roll, his name is Elvis Sinisek. Thanks for being here, mate. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Richie. Um, thanks for pointing out how old I am. Uh, that's always a, a great thing to do at the start of a podcast. Um, but no, no, it's good. Uh, you know, I've been around uh, the sport, um, you know, uh, jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, uh, MMA for a long time. As you mentioned, uh, a pioneer in, in a lot of it. Um, also, first ever uh, uh, ADCC World Championships in 98, competed in the inaugural one there. Landed the first ever heel hook, so a foretelling of... Uh, Things to come in the future. First um, uh, ever go-go platter, I, I've, I, I'm led to believe, in, inside the MMA arena. Yeah, I, I did uh, the first go-go go in, um, back then we called it a shinchoke. Um, yeah. Hadn't been kind of uh, internetly named yeah. back then. Um, it was in uh, rings. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't uh, a finish per se, as in I didn't get a tap, but I got a rope escape off it. So for those back in the day, rings had this uh, rule where if you get caught in a submission, you could touch the rope and then the referee would break and restart the match. So um, he didn't tap from it because it wasn't in the middle of the octagon because we are uh, middle of the ring because it hit the rope. They got a rope escape and we started the, the match again. Well, there you go. That is, that is taking it back. Well, mate, like you mentioned, MMA pioneer, um, you know, UFC fighter yourself, and that's what most people think of when they hear your name and, and they see your image. But way before that, it was IT and, and beach volleyball. So... Pretty interesting turn, I guess, of career path. So tell, tell us all how that came about from IT and, and beach volleyball through to mixed martial arts and UFC and owning gyms and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, it is a, is a pretty interesting and varied story. Um, I always did had done martial arts. Like I started judo when I was fairly young, moved into taekwondo um, through my schooling years. But then when I went to uni, um, everyone knows the pressures of uni. So I pretty much stepped back from the martial arts because a lot of my after hours time was spent studying, doing exams, uh, doing assignments. Um, and I, I focused, I did a degree and I got an IT in, uh, uh, sorry, a degree in IT, a Bachelor of Arts uh, from uh, University of Canberra. So during that time, I didn't have the time really to, to do my martial arts training. I still kind of kept in touch with it, with the Blitz magazine, um, uh, Australasian fighting arts, which I don't think is around anymore. So I still enjoyed uh, my martial arts, but wasn't able to practice it. One of the things we did, I always believed the importance of balance, uh, so mental as well as physical. Uh, because I didn't have the time to do a lot of the, the martial arts, what we used to do is during the day between lectures and uh, classes we just head down to the gym and each week we'd pick a different sport so you know one week we'd play soccer another week we'd play badminton another week we'd play tennis another week we'd play volleyball and just so forth so each week just to kind of keep the body moving uh, to keep the mind fresh we would do something different 
And then we kind of, uh, the, myself and my group of friends started enjoying volleyball because we found it uh, interesting and challenging. And so near the end of my degree, where I started having a little bit more time because it started becoming more assignment-based work, um, and those people who've worked or studied in the IT would know that a lot of that work is done between uh, 1 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So we used to have a lot of a lot more evenings off. So we started playing in a social league. And then at the social league, I got picked to play uh, in a state league team, uh, the ANU state league volleyball team. Really started enjoying that. And then I ended up you know, finishing uni, getting a job. Um, working regular hours and then from there we started traveling to Sydney to play beach volleyball because obviously I was in Canberra back then so not a lot of beaches around yeah. Um, and I yeah, kind of fell in love uh, with the beach volleyball started playing that and and it was around that time that I decided I wanted to get back into martial arts and what drove it was uh, one of my old high school friends ended up working with uh, in uh, what was called AusAid, previously ADAB, just a, a government department. And he actually came up to me and handed me this VHS tape. So for the people who haven't been around that long, it's a little rectangular box you put into your um, TV Recorder. unit yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to, to play. It's like the, the DVD of the past. That was my introduction to the world of <laughs> UFC as well, actually. And, oh. Yeah, yeah. I, got to, um, I watched UFC too, this little Brazilian skinny guy named Hoist Gracie choking out all these big muscly guys. I'm going, wow, this looks uh, really interesting. So I decided to want to get, my friend challenged, he goes, hey, you know, you need to get back into training. And he actually gave me an entry form to a competition called the uh, National All-Stars at NAS. And he goes, the comp's in, I think it was like one month or something. He goes, I dare you to enter it. I'm like, oh, all right. So I went out looking for a school and I wanted to find something that had jujitsu as well. But back in Canberra, back in the day, they didn't have that. And I found a school... Uh, a Jun fan school. So they had, you know, striking from Muay Thai. They had stick work from Kali. Um, they had some grappling from Jiu Jitsu. It was kind of a, a mixed bag of training, you know, that Bruce Lee style of training. Uh, enter, ended up entering the, the, the National All Styles Comp in Canberra, winning that one. And that kind of got my um, ball rolling again to get back into the martial arts. And then during that, obviously, that class, we, we were doing different elements stick work, knife work. Uh, striking, grappling, and I really kind of fell fell in love with the, the grappling side. And I discovered John Will going over to Brazil. He ended up meeting the Gracie family, then the Machado family. Um, and so I was reading about his journey. And at that time, I was playing pro beach volleyball, so traveling up to Sydney every couple of weekends, uh, playing on the tour. And so I started traveling up to Sydney and I decided I want to move up to Sydney. So I ended up moving up to Sydney, getting a job. Oh, that's a case of kombucha, mate. Yes. <laughs> normally, normally a case of beer, but we'll accept a case of kombucha. On your we'll go the kombucha, the fermented <laughs> drink. Um, ended up uh, moving up to Sydney. And then when I'm up there, wanted to find somewhere to train. Started actually with the Kali school because there was no uh, jujitsu around. And Kali's a stick martial Stick fighting, yeah, stick yeah. and knife fighting, yeah. So, yeah. you know, I was doing that until I found uh, a school, which was Anthony Lange's um, gym, out, teaching out of a school hall in Manly. And he had Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He had actually shoot fighting, so he did some striking and Jiu-Jitsu. Um, again, John Will, you know, the pioneer, he brought uh, Jiu-Jitsu instruction to Australia, uh, introduced it to the masses. And 
but he was also doing shoot fighting. So he actually knew the importance of striking and grappling back in the day. He was one of the first people to really do what we call MMA in this country. Now, uh, he ended up going more specifically in the jiu-jitsu uh, direction in the end, but it just shows just how uh, visional he was at the time, knowing that you needed both that striking and grappling, which is um, what we have uh, in MMA. But anyway, I kept, uh, I moved up to Sydney to play the beach, uh, discover the jiu-jitsu school, and then picked up a magazine one day and there's this, do you want to fight in the ultimate fighting championships? You know, apply here now, event coming to Australia. And I'm like, you know what, I've always, I wanted to, the first time I watched that VHS, I said to myself, I'd love to challenge myself and give that it a skinny go. skinny little Brazilian in pyjamas yeah, can well, do it. Yeah, I'm skinny, I'm a little taller, maybe I can do it too. Um, and so I just thought, what the heck, I'll, you know, jump on board. And that's kind of pretty much, I mean, the long-winded version of the story. Mm. Um, started in IT, got into volleyball, which led me to beach volleyball, which drew me to Sydney, which got me to uh, a jiu-jitsu gym, which then helped me discover mixed martial arts. Yeah. And here I am today talking to you. There we go. Well, kind of similar in a way to mine, because I learned mixed martial arts just, you know, through... Uh, yeah, the off chance of meeting some Brazilian guys in New Jiu-Jitsu, got caught up in that and, um, yeah, didn't get involved to make a career out of martial arts or just wanted to do it, like you said, for the challenge. So it'll be interesting. And, uh, yeah, it can, it can definitely get you hooked pretty quick. And um, So even before then, you know, Sinisek, it's not your common Australian name, mate, much like my own. Uh, Vatsalik, always get asked where that's from. So Croatian's your background. Parents yeah, that, moved, that's correct. Yep, yep. to Canberra. So their first, first like... Uh, what I say, first generation sort of immigrants to, to Australia? That's correct. Yeah, my dad um, kind of escaped over the border from Croatia into Italy, ended up in um, a refugee camp over there. He was actually supposed to be going to Canada. Um, so he was waiting. I think he had a three-month wait for a ship, you know, because back then it was all ships and yeah. that sort of stuff. So, um, And they were doing it properly. So he's in this camp, but the life was terrible in there. And about two months in, he's got a month to still go. And they come out and they go, hey, we've got some space on this ship to Australia. And he's like, where's that? He goes, well, the opposite direction to, to Canada. Did you want to go? And he's like, what the hell? So he jumps on the ship and uh, heads out to Australia, makes a home out here, writes, uh, like we don't do anymore, a letter, letters to my mum, starts conversing with her back home, uh, organises to bring her out. They move out. Um, and then they make a little boy named Elvis, and um, I don't know what they were thinking with that name, but it's stuck with me ever since. Yeah, no, it's funny. The reason I ask is it's a yeah, very similar story to, to my own parents. So they, they moved out here, sort of, yeah, first generation Australians as well. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm first generation you know, since they moved here. My father came out as a political refugee, much like your father, so, yeah, and it was just, I thought it was yeah, interesting how, how you, yeah. You know, how your parents find Australia, and, and you know, back in the day, like they all made their way here via boats, is a you know very much a different world. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy because I mean, obviously today, if you want to know what the place is like, you jump on your phone and uh, Google it. Yeah, yeah. You're like, or even a computer. Back then, there was no Google. It's a there was six no week boat trip to find out. You get yeah, out, you, you step off into a, a totally different world. You, you communicated with letters, like even telephone calls were rare. Not everyone, yeah. you know, had telephones back then, and it's kind of like. Um, yeah, it, it must have been pretty scary because they really, really had not much idea of what was going on other than what they read in newspapers or books yep. uh, or maybe saw on TV. And even that would have been limited, uh, unlike today where we're 
we can be connected the whole time across anywhere across the planet. It wasn't that long ago, really. Yeah, it was only what forty years ago or something. Yeah, a bit well, longer. Yeah, about fifty years ago yeah. for them. And how how different? It's crazy how how yeah you know, how times have changed so quick. But anyway, back to Australia. You've gone you know hooked with martial arts. What was the scene like back then? Was there mixed mixed martial arts? It was unheard of. It was called Valley Tudo, I believe, and, and all kinds of no hold bar contests. And was there much of a scene here in Australia, or was it really just in like practitioners of yeah, sort of individual martial arts trying to try their hand, much like it was how it started abroad. And, and yeah, what were the first origins of, of mixed martial arts in Australia and, and competing in those in those just sort of grassroots scenes? Yeah, well, it was a, a pretty crazy time. It kind of flared up for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, early on, as you said, it was more style versus style. It was about seeing whose martial art was most effective into that situation and... Um, what would work, what didn't work. I kind of realized um, going into it myself the importance of being at least well-versed in other styles. So I was, uh, you know, cross-training, um, even though specifically my my goal was the ground fighting or my game was the grappling, the, the Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'd done a little bit of judo when I was younger. But as you said, it was called valet judo. It was referred to as no holds barred. Uh, it were pretty much... The first couple of events were three rules, you know, no biting, no eye gouging, no fish hooking. Um, and that's fair. pretty much it. Yeah, you know. That, that'll be, I'll be left with nothing to do then. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, we, we, you know, headbutts, stomps and kicks on the ground, elbows, knees, everything was, you know, considered fair play uh, in that realm. And yeah, and even the training side of it, we really didn't know how to train like we were pulling ideas from we're looking at other sports at how they did their strength and conditioning and then trying to apply it to us we're trying to work out how to incorporate um our grappling with our striking with our wrestling how to kind of seamlessly kind of fit it all together you know because you know there wasn't a clear definition of what you know what works and what didn't um so yeah, that that first event event was a, a real uh, eye opener and adventure, and it kind of blew up very quickly. There was a lot of controversy. The the first event had a lot of police officers there. They were literally waiting for a call from, uh, you know, I'm not sure what government office or something to try and shut it down. And the um, the promoter at the time. You know, had his lawyers on on board, and they were doing all all this stuff to try and make sure the event went ahead, and the, the government were trying to make sure the event didn't go ahead, um, because I'm not even sure if it was called the CSA or Combat Sports Authority, but the the authority back then that oversaw um, boxing and kickboxing and wrestling um, didn't cover martial arts. So one of the things we had to do in the lead up to the fight. So if you looked at the the um the interviews and videos for it everybody was representing a traditional martial arts style even if you did boxing um or kickboxing they said they called you a karate stylist or a taekwondo stylist Mm -hmm. uh if you did wrestling they called you a grappler or a judo player or a jiu-jitsu player because the les the legislation would have allowed for the government to close it down if someone was boxing or wrestling in that into that cage yeah um, because yeah, that they, they have their rules and therefore it comes under their jurisdiction. They don't want it to happen. They shut it down. Yep. So everybody was a traditional martial artist, and that's what we were representing uh, inside to try and avoid 
um, the risk of litigation and getting shut down and it ended up the event go- went ahead there was about 5000 people which was you know pretty crazy uh, yeah, for I that mean, sort for of time and it was events. in um that's, 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 i mean that's a good crowd in, you know, for today yeah, even today and it was right crowd. right in darling harbour right in the middle of the middle of the city as well which I, when you kind of look back is pretty crazy mm. you wouldn't have expected the first event maybe to be somewhere RSL, hidden out west of, well, somewhere uh, but no it happened right in the middle of the city um went off and obviously there was a lot of legal issues in the background which we as fans and fighters really didn't get to see a lot of um wasn't until afterwards that we started hearing about uh, what was going on from that side of things. Uh, they ended up running um, another event, which was the Australian Valet Chudo Open. Uh, and that was even crazier. Like our first event was in a cage, which, you know, it's what the UFC mm. had. And it, it was there for the safety of the fighters. What people don't realize when you got two big people barreling out at each other and running into a cage, it protects you from falling out. You have a Much ring. Much safer than a ring, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the the next event that they had is I think I don't know why I don't know if it was because he had issues not paying the other person or whether the government didn't allow but they didn't have a ring Mm. they ended up having an octagonal ring but to keep the kind of raw element raised off the ground it was raised yeah yeah. it was it was an elevated um, octagon ring but instead of ring ropes they used chain yeah now and they did it just for the look. And you think, well, chain's got to be pretty secure. You know, that's... But what you don't realise is chain doesn't have any give. So if you fall on it, yeah, it will... open you up pretty quick. Well, it's going to turn into a steel bar very quick. And my coach, uh, Anthony Lange, actually broke his forearm falling on it. Mm. But didn't realise during the match what had happened. He just lost use of his arm during the match. Like, he, at one point, he stops the ref to check his arm and... It looks fine because it's straight, but yep. he'd actually fractured right through his um, uh, one Aye. forearm oh. and the other one was partially fractured. All for fractured. the spectacle. Yeah, all for the spectacle. And at one point, I was so uh, pissed off at the, the, the way that everything had happened on the day. There were a lot of things that didn't go well in the lead up. And I was actually, I had this 120 kilo opponent and I was driving him up against the chain trying to push... Uh, the panels over they had people on the outside with their hands trying to hold the 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 ring up to stop it from collapsing under our Mm. you know combined 250 kilograms of uh weight there so it was uh i've seen you behave similar at fox sports too sometimes when uh you know you're a little hungry or you know well, so that someone puts sugar in front of me, I can lose it. Uh, yeah, I get a little bit upset. It actually sometimes. sounds like that first event, not not the second one you mentioned with the change. Yeah. The first event, like it ran smoother than a lot of events do today. Got a, a bigger crowd. It's pretty crazy for the first event in Australia to to be such a success and and to be run so well under the guise of a martial arts events where you know I guess having everyone as a martial artist, you know, you can get away with it. But yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, the, the early days, how it all kicked off, and um, I guess it was a bit of a slow burn, like it was internationally. We're always a little bit high on the eight ball here in Australia, with um, you know how the sport evolved overseas. But um, like it wasn't long. Ninety seven was your MMA debut. So yeah, ninety seven was the MMA debut. Uh, ninety eight um, was the the second event, the Valet Chudo Open. It's also the same year I competed in the ADCC mm-hmm. um, in Abu Dhabi. Um, I think 98 was also the same year I won the inaugural uh, Pan Pacific Championship, the, the AFBJJ Pan yeah. Pacific Championships. And then nothing 
for and, two years. Until 2000 when you made yeah. your UFC debut. Um, like I, I wanted to stay involved in the sport, which is, again, it was kind of interesting. I used to do a lot of leg locks. I was interested in heel hooks and mm. that sort of stuff. Um, to see where it is today, I guess we know. Down I know. There, I kind of, we'll, we'll probably kind get of, to that, but you know, how is yeah. I kind of kick, kick my ass back now. I think if I had a bit more time, I could be today's <laughs> Dan Herb. But hey, ahead of the times, mate. You, you get that. But because I wasn't able to get any MMA fights, I started doing more jiu-jitsu matches mm-hmm. and they, you know, they weren't allowing heel hooks and stuff. So I just kind of stopped training in them and focusing um, on what I could do and you know, worked on my game from there. You know, so I spent two years just training, not much happening. I did um, I do like a sports jiu-jitsu competition. Mm-hmm. So your traditional jiu-jitsu is kind of striking, grappling. I do grappling competitions, jiu-jitsu competitions, um, kind of whatever I could. I even did the odd um, point fighting competition mm-hmm. just to kind of stay, stay in active. touch and, and doing stuff. And yeah, and it wasn't until um, 2000 where I got an opportunity to fight again. So I jumped online and uh, this was again before a lot of the forums and, and things like that. And I was on a mailing list. So this shows you how, just how old I am. So mailing lists were where people would talk to each other via email. So you'd send an email to an address and then it would go out to all the subscribers. So everyone would get it and then anyone could reply. They'd reply to that address and it'd go out to everyone. So you had the option of being live or um, going on the digest version. Because the majority of the people are in the US, I went digest version. Um, so I'd just get the list of um, all the responses. I've got to mention the start, yeah. Uh, animal lover in the in the long list of um, accolades for Cinesec. Uh Absolutely, um, yeah. I, I pretty much have one of everything. Nearly, it's uh, Cinesec Zoo back home. Uh, dogs, cats, birds, lizards, turtles, all sorts of stuff going out on out there. Not to mention what's uh, in the yard with possums and yeah. in uh, the dragons river. in the river and eels. So. So, and, and is that what eventually led to your UFC de- debut by that email? Uh, yeah, sort of so what happened was uh, the, the email list was um, called the combat list. Mm-hmm. And on that list, um, I met the promoter of uh, what was called UCC back then, Universal Combat Challenge, which later on became TKO, which is the organization that GSP came out of. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a Canadian-based uh, Montreal so organization. It might be uh, just because you probably won't cut that bit out. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, you can if you like, but we, we just continue We're to happy uh, to keep going. Oh, just in terms of the flow, it's weird to have a dog enter. <laughs> so it might be just good to get a clean question just to sort of back it up a bit. Okay, yep, cool. So you're back and forth with the uh, correspondence via email, like you said, back in the day. Uh, I guess that's eventually how the call was made to you from the UFC saying, you know, we wanted you to be a part of this organisation. Yeah, look, yeah, that's right. The, um, the mailing list was called the Combat List. Um, so on that list, obviously, I met um, you know a lot of uh, interesting people. One of them was the promoter uh, for the UCC, mm-hmm. uh, Universal Combat Challenge, which later on became TKO, which is the organization out of Canada uh, that Georges Saint Pierre GSP uh, came quite, out. Quite of. a large organization and produced a fair few yeah, good yeah, fighters yeah. In, in the uh, in the long run. Yeah, um, but back in the early days, again, it was very small. Um, I wanted to get on board uh, on that one. Uh, in their first show but there wasn't a spot I'll go back to that story but uh, on that mailing list I also met this um, guy that worked uh, for the UFC he was kind of a a helper runner admin 
to the matchmaker uh, John Peretti. And um, this guy, you know, no one really knew who he was. And then later on would become Joe Silva, you know, the matchmaker uh, to the UFC. So I met him and he was a massive uh, fan of the sport. He had a great, what people don't realize is he has a great in-depth knowledge of the sport. Like he may never have really been a competitor or anything, but he was a big fan. He used to, you know, stay in touch with all the events in Japan, the shootos, the mm-hmm. pancreases, the rings. He knew what was going on. Um, he watched the, you know, the circuit in the uh, US with hook and shoot and a lot of their smaller shows. So he was actually quite a knowledgeable person. So when he actually took over the role, so when uh, Zufa um, came on board, bought bought the uh, promotion off SEG, um, they got rid of uh, John Peretti because he was a little bit of a controversial mm-hmm. sort of matchmaker and I think he worked as commentator as well for a bit um, and so obviously I had that relationship uh, with Joe with so Joe and then that was in the door which kind of yeah kind of uh, when the shit hit the fan basically uh, and they needed a short uh, short uh, replacement um, he hit me up and it kind and of it was against Jeremy Horn yes that's correct yeah, and so, he was just coming off a pretty uh a oh, huge upset win over Chuck Liddell. Is that right? Or was that before the Chuck Liddell fight? I actually don't remember. I know he had beaten Frank Shamrock. Yep. So what happened you, was... You had fought as well? Yeah. So what happened was I fought in UCC um, in, uh, I think it was October of um, 2000, which... Um, I had a title fight. I got a last minute. I was a last minute replacement. Mm-hmm. Got stuck in a heavyweight title fight against Dave Benito, who was um, uh, also an ex UFC fighter who fought Carlos Bajeto, um, a bit huge Brazilian uh, BJJ black belt that had, you know. So those if, uh, mm-hmm. who are aware of the history of the sport would know that was a, a big thing back in the day. Um, so I ended up fighting him. The, it was a bit controversial. I probably should have won. Didn't. Footage never appeared, and um, so I ended up going to a draw. And then from that, I got a short-notice fight against Frank Shamrock in Japan um, in November uh, to uh, fight because he he was trying to get a Japanese opponent. He was looking for, I believe, um, like Yuki Kondo. Uh, I just heard about this fight when we were in last year, the year before. We were doing some work with Rob Whitaker over in the states when he fought Natal. Then off the back of Rod's fight, we went over across to the West Coast trained over at AKA with uh, Javier, who was Frank Shamwalk's coach Coach back in the day, yeah. And he was telling me about this fight when you fought uh, Frank because relatively unknown, Frank Shamwalk was a pretty huge name in the sport at the time. And they said, yeah, we'll take Elvis, you know, last minute kind of replacement. Javier was saying, mate, this guy's dangerous. Be careful. And Frank Shamwalk was, you know, pretty confident at the time, late replacement, guy from Australia, you know, sports unheard of over there. I want to walk through this guy, you know, pretty easily. And Javier was saying, I know you... This guy's going to be hard work. You know, don't take him lightly. And, and it was a very tough fight. I mean, Frank eventually got the win, but you gave him a hard time. Yeah, no, as I said, a short notice fight because they were trying to get a Japanese opponent. They wanted Yuki Kondo or Kiyoshi Tamura. The reason being, Yuki was the poster boy for Pancras. Kiyoshi was the poster boy for Ring. So big names in Japan. Mm-hmm. The goal was for Frank to put in a spectacular performance in this K1 match to try and get into pride because yeah. th- that was th- that was kind of everyone if you fought in Japan your goal was to get into pride he wanted to get into pride but he wanted to do it as as a big name yeah, yeah. you know obviously five times UFC champion so yeah he got that fight with me um and what was funny is 
the only footage he had was from 98 when I fought Kiyoshi Tamura. I, I think I went 10 minutes and obviously it wasn't uh, my best performance again because that was a short at, at that time pretty much all my fights were short notice fights mm -hmm. even the fight that I had in Australia was a two week short notice mm -hmm. fight when an, with an injury pull out short notice fight against Kiyoshi in 98 short notice fight um, against Dave Bennett it's really like if you're if you're you know up and coming uh, mixed martial arts you've got to be ready to jump on those opportunities because the short notice fights are some of the best opportunities in the sport you see so many guys getting caught up short notice having a you know, great 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 win, surprising everyone, and then going on to have an awesome career is because you're either training and you're, you know, you're sort of constantly or always in somewhat reasonably shape. You've got to be ready to take those opportunities because, like I said, they, they can lead to some huge things. So, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely great opportunities. I, I wouldn't have faced some of the biggest names in the sport had it not been for short notice opportunities. Mm. If I was building my way up, Trying to pick I, might have, you know, I might have got there eventually, but then I, I may not have. You know, mm. I got these opportunities to literally face the best guys at the world you know the mm. current world champions when a lot of other people were turning down these offers and opportunities because they were trying to kind of build their way up there so being from australia i didn't have a lot of opportunity so any opportunity was a was a great opportunity but yeah as you mentioned that fight went five rounds it was a good backwards and forwards uh, match you know, some points were close, some not so close, but it was definitely fun. And as you said, it kind of uh, brought my name to the international scene. You know, people started talking about, mm. you know, this guy that went the distance with Frank. When, and Frank even said to me after the fight, he goes, you know what, what, what I do is I break people. So mm. I find out, you know, what they do and then I just break them and that's how I beat them. Um, and then, yeah, you know, Jeremy Horn had a number one contender fight coming up. Uh, he was meant to fight Cafe Dante, who got a big hole in his leg from a staph infection mm -hmm. in Brazil. And again, it was like two weeks or 10 days before the event, uh, he's pulled out. Now, they'd been, they'd been trying to set up for years Tito versus uh, Jeremy Horn because they were the yep. two, two of the biggest names um, that hadn't faced off uh, in, the, in the US um, that the fans knew about. Um, and people wanted to see this match. So they're like, well, who's going to... No one would take the fight because, you know, Jeremy Horn was known um, as being an extremely dangerous person. He didn't... Um, outside the sport, wasn't a very big name, but those in the sport knew just how hard he worked, how skilled very he tough. was. You know, he'd already gone the distance with um, Anderson Silva. He'd already gone the mm -hmm. distance with Minotaur and Nogueira, who's a, you know, who was a heavyweight... Yeah. Um, had shown a lot of skill and yeah, had really done like, a like lot. Like I said, he went on to, to submit Chuck when Chuck was in his prime. You know, he struck the world. Yeah. These names like TDRT, Frank Shamrock. I mean, I'm looking at you know, some of your past opponents, Babalu, uh, you know, TDRT, Forrest Griffin, Bisping, you know, like obviously a lot of people are familiar with some of those last names, but like Babalu, Jeremy Horn, Frank Shamrock, Ortiz, these are the, the you know, the superstars today, the Conor McGregor's back when you know when the UFC was just starting to get mainstream, and uh, for someone from Australia to you know be jumping in and uh, you know tying the hand with them, you know, is pretty impressive. But out of all those fights, what was the most memorable, and you know what was the sort of the, the biggest of you know, the Look, biggest spectacle out of all those? Because it was honestly the UFC was getting pretty huge at this time with you know stars like Tito. It's, it's kind of difficult because each of them have different elements that make it. Uh, kind of crazy. So, like the the Frank Shamrock fight, 
was just insane because um, we're in Saitama Arena with somewhere between seventy to 80,000 people. I had come from the biggest event I'd ever been in was 5,000 people. And even that was mind-blowing for me at the time. Mm. So to, to go into the Saitama Arena with these 80,000 people um, around and it was just mind-boggling. Like I, I got to meet um, one of, you know, uh, Hicks and Gracie and uh, Wallet Ishmael and all these big names which I'd read about but never had an opportunity to meet. And suddenly I'm meeting these people that, you know, that people talk about, but you never get to really get yeah, to meet. And almost I'm like, mythical. Yeah, like yeah so I was just in awe at the event. I It actually felt like I'd already done five rounds of fighting before I even stepped the, in the cage, the just from the adrenaline. Like yeah. I was literally running around the... Because, you know, I was a fighter. You could do what you want. So I was like... Imagine rooms. the photos you would have been getting into a social media round back then. Yeah. Sadly, <laughs> that's one of the things that no no camera phones, no social media, no camera. Like, a little wind-up Kodak you could get from the, uh, the, the camera. I, I didn't bring it with me, so... Uh, Oh, um, yeah, I just think of some of the shots I could have got back in the day. <laughs> but no, it's just it was just such an awe-inspiring experience. And then to finally step in the ring with Frank Shamrock, who was a five-time champion, and he pushed me to the limit. You know, that, that fight really um, made me work and made me realize what I was capable of. And then the first time stepping into uh, the UFC uh, octagon against Jeremy Horn, that just that sticks in my mind because the first time the crowd there seemed bigger than the, the, the Saitama Arena crowd, not by the size, but the volume. Yeah. The one thing with Japanese crowds is they're Quiet. very subdued. At the right moment, they'll go, ooh, or they'll clap, yeah. do that sort of, um, you know, something exciting happen. They you they know it to respond at the right yeah. time, which No, is kick cool. him in the dick and... No, that's, that. that's not until you get to the UFC. So, uh. um, so that first time, it was just absolutely crazy just in front of it was like again awesome and then to get the win it was just that is probably one of my you know the greatest moments the first time in the ufc i get the win um everyone every single analyst in the lead up to the fight because back then there was this newspaper um called full contact fighter so there was no online um articles or anything like that It, it was a physical newspaper which would come out generally about a month before the fight or whatever and um i read it because it didn't get to australia until after our fight so it's because they tied to a pigeon and they fly it to australia yeah um i i yeah back then i think they used bats yeah right because yeah, yeah. they're traveling at night uh, but yeah i didn't see the the actual uh newspaper until i actually got to the u.s because obviously it, it took long. We never received them until the events were over, even though there were predictions of the upcoming event because it had to be posted out. We never got them until the event was over. So I actually, for the first time ever, read one of these before the event and it was about my fight and every single analyst predicted that I would lose by submission in under three minutes. Mm. I won in two minutes and 59 seconds by submission. So, so to a reverse, it was just, yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that was pretty cool. And then, um, again, the world title fight against Tito. And this is one of the, the coolest things. I'm so lucky that I got to fight in the early days because back in the early days, they were still, you know, trying to find their own place in sport, you know, between um, your football 
and you're pro wrestling and they were trying to be a, they were trying to be a legitimate sport but they were trying to be a spectacle so we had the, the same sort of entries that um a lot of the pro wrestling events had so tito had all these flames and pyrotechnics and we had the ramp down to the cage mm. I, I think they should bring the ramp back that i mean well that I, was, I love those entries especially then pride carried on with it you know even like you no know, rampage was doing it not too long ago uh mayhem millie's always come out to a real good dance well, we still, up. We still i don't have know guys who, who dance and come out to that and I, I agree with you if you had that ramp it just puts the focus on the fighter. Yeah. They can bring him straight down. And I know it's more theatrical than fight, but... but some a, fighters like to do that. They should be allowed to. Well, they just show their character and show, like, there's a lot of different... You know, it's, a, it's a melting pot of, of different you know, personalities and people. They should be allowed to enter well, the ring, I think, absolutely. how, they, how can, they like. It can even become a ritual to prepare you for the fight because it puts you into... It's like people who wear... Um, you have to put on a certain pair of underwear or a certain yeah, pair of yeah, socks yeah, yeah. when you compete or they only use this mouth guard because it's their ritual which puts them in the frame of mind and yeah having that that cool walk down the cage uh the ramp it was awesome i had uh, this throne they actually put a throne for me up on stage and these cool i had laser pyrotechnics <laughs> going off uh, and i'll never forget it just because that that experience was absolutely just mm mind-blowing and then you know the fight didn't go the way i wanted but it was just such an awesome experience i have to say you know tito's probably one of the physically strongest people um you know i've wrestled guys who are 120 kilos and um tying up with tito felt like tying up with a a, a, a brick shithouse yeah. <laughs> yeah well anyway that's what he was known for wasn't he just getting his opponent to the mat and just his brutal brand and ground pound so that's yeah he i think he was aware of his strength and that's why he, he had so much success but yeah look see so you fought inside the ufc for many years and then was it 2007 was your last fight no no i fought all the way up until i think oh yeah 2007 was the last fight in the ufc yeah but i fought all the way up to 2009 yep um and then I was supposed to fight 2010. On the Sydney event. In the Sydney, That's yeah, right. UFC 110, the, the inaugural event here in Sydney. And it was supposed to be a rematch of my very first ever um, MMA show, which mm. was against Chris Hazeman. And mm. uh, he won by chin to the eye um, <laughs> submission. Um, and so this was meant <laughs> to be, you know. They don't teach that anymore at King's Academy? Is that they teach that? I know, yeah. We show it to our juniors. It's yeah. a fantastic... Um, <laughs> Way to introduce the junior you to program, the mount. just yeah. chin to eye and, and leg locks, is it? Just the mount, hold the head. Yeah. Um, no. Um, but, but what I was saying, since then, you know, you sort of you haven't competed professionally, and I know you you you've always said you, you never retire, you never know what may happen. So, uh, but you stayed so involved in the sport. Uh, had SPMA with Anthony Parosh, a uh, couple gyms there. Yep. Now you have your own gym, King's Academy. Uh, you and Anthony yeah, have got separate gyms. Uh, you're also the, the head BJJ kind of in, sort of overseer of all the UFC gyms here in Australia. That's correct. And obviously you, know, you, you commentate on the U, uh, UFC Fight a Week on Fox as well. So what's it been like? Or how, how, do you, how, how have you seen the sport evolve here in Australia? Um, the level and the depth of talent we have and where, where do you see it going? Obviously we've got Whitaker fighting in a few weeks now you know, to defend his world title so it's obviously um per capita we're doing pretty well and yeah i mean for you to see it from those early days to where it is now we, we now have our, our own australian champion um it must have been a pretty quick rise for australian mma well well actually no it hasn't been a quick but it's been a long journey like obviously it it's steamrolled recently like it mm -hmm. is really um 
come a long way in a short time, but it's been a long journey. As I said, you know, we, we started back in 97, so um, that's like... So uh, 20 years ago, we'll say. Yeah, 20, 20, 21 years ago. Still a lot of countries out there that don't have a world champion who are, you know... Yeah, no, no, no. Look, we've done amazing things. And as I said, in the last couple of years, it's come a long way. I've watched the sport when it was, you know, no holds barred. Um, It was style versus style. And then people started realizing you had to cross train. And then I saw the evolution of grapplers winning and then uh, strikers becoming the dominant force once they learn how to do takedown defense and then um, the wrestling and then the wrestling putting people up against the cage using the cage as an offensive weapon then using the cage as a defensive weapon um, you know Chuck Liddell learnt uh, basically started wall walking uh, Coleman started was the, the the grandfather of ground and pound so I've seen the the sport evolve and it's now become a legitimate uh, athletic endeavor where people now realize they have to focus on the the different elements the striking the grappling um, the wrestling um, but also in those realms uh, applying those to your open spaces to your cage spaces um, working on your time limits number of rounds conditioning um, and then merging it all together so uh, I guess 20 years you can look at it as a, as a long period or as a short time. It's a you know twenty year overnight success. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it, it's been fantastic to see how the sport has evolved. You know, across the globe, but particularly here in Australia. You know, the the last couple of years, and again, even um, Rob Whitaker is you know is an overnight sensation that's been training for 10, 15 years. Because yeah. you know, I remember seeing him in the days. Um, of uh, CFC yeah, and yep. um, him, his grappling was very basic. He had a couple of moves that he could use, and then if someone countered that, he kind of got that stuck. Toughness and athleticism. Uh, yeah, he was tough. He was athletic. Um, That's, <clears throat> it feels like only yesterday that you know that I fought at the Hall of Pavilion with Rob, and you know, that was almost. Past, over 10 years ago now that's why I feel like it's been such a rapid rise because it still feels like yesterday that I was introduced to this sport you know? yeah, that, I think out. that's generally referred to as concussion <laughs> <laughs> punch drum <laughs> yeah, yeah no, it has flown hasn't it when you put the numbers down to it it has been a while yeah but um, yeah like and even all the skill sets that you just mentioned then how many all the fighters you know are taking all the individual components of mixed martial arts so seriously, but it's also outside of the, the cage. People, you know, the fans don't see the weight cutting, the science behind making weight or choosing which weight you want to uh, compete at. You've experienced sort of either end of the spectrum, and you kind of buck the trend of an aging fighter in getting lighter as you age. You, you fought at heavyweight, and then you made most of your career at light heavyweight, and now you're probably walking around at the size of a middleweight. You know, and well, possibly even some welterweights apparently walk around at my weight. So yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's another thing. You must have seen, I mean, in the early days, weight cutting wasn't a huge part of the sport compared to what it is now? Um, yes and no. Yeah. There was, as, as you mentioned, there was that era where wrestlers started to become... Um, the dominant force. The dominant force. So those guys were masters weight. at weight weight cutting. So they, they And that's what really introduced uh, yeah. the weight cutting issue to martial into, arts, it yeah, was the, so, the wrestling aspect. So back in my day, I pretty much walked around... Um, my time, the majority of my career, I probably walked around 95 90, mm. to 97 kilos. That's pretty much my, you know, off-season weight. I'd literally hit the 93 kilos, which is the 205. Um, back in the day, um, again, I even saw the, the 
introduction of no you know no weight classes to weight classes mm-hmm. to, to two weight classes light and heavy to three weight classes light middle and heavy mm-hmm. to the weight classes we have today so i've even seen that transition and again adding the weight classes has created the um the weight cutting culture because now it's given a greater opportunity to people of all different sizes to be able to compete more competitively against people closer to their weight rather than and back in the day where it, it was more friendly to the mainstream too it's very very confronting to watch you know a 150 kilo guy take on an 80 kilo guy and you know like as it was in the early days oh, so to, to make it more mainstream it, it, it and, was, and to make it more of a professional sport too yeah yeah you're right again it made it more of a spectacle and when the little guy won it was um well i think that's it was, why it was in, impressive in vhs why, days everyone was yeah. grabbing that vhs to watch the little brazilian guy beat all these big fellas up because it was so amazing to see someone physically so handicapped i guess compared to some of the guys to do so well and but, that's- but the reason it worked so well was because the bigger guys were not as skilled as the smaller guys mm. in those certain areas as athletes became more aware of the different elements started cross training the skill gap started closing once the skill gap started to close then strength size speed started mm. to make a difference so the bigger guys started winning so then what happened is people had to start doing more strength and conditioning because back in the day we did fitness training mm. but we didn't really focus Long to ride the, runs yeah runs and the goal was about being fit and you know having been able to you know we did some weights just star to, jumps um burpees <laughs> you know that's the the enduring love of everyone's life uh, um you know we did those sort of things but as the sport grew and people real the skill gap got closer than the difference between became your athleticism so you need to do strength conditioning all that sort of stuff then the weight divisions came in so now it became more of a fine art of finding the right weight division cutting weight being strong being technically proficient so yeah there's a you know a lot Mm. uh, that goes into into that preparation and you know to before you actually finally step in there but for what most of the people see is uh, again it's that iceberg analogy you're just seeing the tip of it has so much goes on beneath the surface that you just never get to see mm. and that's why when, when people do find about weight cutting and stuff they're so yeah, yeah, sorry mate i could duck out that's right, mate. thanks guys no problem good job boys see you soon see you soon do you want to have a bigger break or are you having a good time oh i'm happy to go yeah, yeah me too yeah that's um that's why people are so baffled when they do hear about weight cutting stories and how much weight fighters do cut you know people who are just fans of the sport and all they see is the spectacle on the night and then they hear that you know 24 hours before the fight this fighter weighed 15 kilos less than he did on the night and yeah this it is it's crazy and i mean the reason i bring it up to the whole weight issue and the, the the way you fought at heavyweight uh and now you said you're walking around the size of some welterweights these days you know you're very into nutrition your diet uh, and you know the way you live your lifestyle um through fighting and cutting weight myself, I, I've took an interest in nutrition and, and ways of eating, and we have similarities in that respect. That you know, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're trying to put the best calories in and and to so you can perform the best, but also maintain a lightest weight. You you've found that best for you is almost eventually now a no carb diet, so yep. almost like a caveman. Uh, what do they call it? A carnivore diet. Carnivore almost. diet. Yeah. So started you started off keto carnivore. Keto carnival. It started off what you try to get low carb, and then you just over a few years you've worked your way down to almost no carb. So it's pretty well, uh, crazy yeah. to a lot of people who are listening will be thinking, how do you survive on a no carb diet? Um, 
and I've looked into I've read you know listened to a few people and Sean Barker Sean Baker he, he pretty much is a pioneer of the carnivore diet where all he eats is pretty much look 95% red meat and a bit of, bit of fish a bit of chicken and he's documented oh he's a doctor as well he's a professional athlete he is, he's 50 plus in age he um he's got world records and all kinds of like erg the rower all kinds of um yep you know records he set post going this diet so he's you know he's got the, the data to back it up how effective it can be and yeah i'm always picking your brain about nutrition and diet because you know you're a living breathing example of of that way and uh yeah what, what got you into that like what got you why were you so drawn and actually applying such what many will say is an extreme you know diet way of living look it's the same as any journey you got to start somewhere um and for me, it was like when I was a fighter, I'll be honest, like because I didn't really I didn't understand weight cutting at the time. I pretty much fought at my walk around weight. I did cut some weight. I'm not going to lie, like may have been a kilo or two on the on the week of the fight, um, sometimes a little bit more because when you as you would know, when you fly overseas, you get that water retention. So, you know, we'd land in a country. I'd have a couple of kilos. I, you know, it was pretty much just saunering. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until actually I retired and started working with other athletes or students um, that my fighters that I had to actually look more in depth into how to weight cut to help give them um, the best opportunity. But my journey was, you know, when I was fighting, I was literally eating pizza and KFC and because um, you're the majority training hard, of my you're camp, it off. It's I would, all good. That's, yeah, well, I didn't have to. I didn't have to make weight, so it wasn't that much. Of, I would obviously clean up the diet um, in fight, fight. In, in fight camp as I, yeah. I got closer. But you know, off season, and I was lucky because, um, as you mentioned, I never stopped training. Mm. So I didn't. I didn't take you know months off. I you know I'd do a fight and I'd go back to train because I love training. So I was always on the mat. You know, the most I took off was a week or two. And that was most of the time just until Rest stitches. The body or, yeah. yeah, well, stitches, bruising, and uh, you know, give yourself a bit of a mental break as mm. well. So two weeks was generally the longest time I took off after a fight. I was mm. back in there, and it's so, funny, I, so I never had issues now, with weight. The reason why fighters have a long time off in between fights is because of how drastic the weight cut is on them, and they need that time to recover. And they, they, yeah, but it's funny. So I go it, ahead. Yeah, 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 it does create that issue of that yo-yo effect. Yeah, so. they blow out, and yeah. Um, yeah, we'll we have to talk about what some of the other uh, organizations are doing in that regard after we finish this bit. Yeah. But anyway, so um, as we were talking earlier, I was supposed to fight UFC 110, uh, 2010 here in Australia. Um, and during the camp, I've injured my shoulder. I've had an underlying injury, which I wasn't that aware. I wasn't really. I, just, I, knew, I knew I had problems with my shoulder, but it would, it would ache sometimes. Then it'd be okay. And then it'd hurt. And then it'd yeah. be okay. Um, and then obviously this uh, uh, six, eight, uh, eight week camp that I did. So it was the first time, like I'd been fighting for years and all I'd ever done was train from um, Australia. Mm -hmm. So this was the first time I'd actually, I went over to Thailand. I trained there for a couple of weeks. Then I went to Texas. Tiger? Yeah, Tiger. Yep. So I was one of the, the first um, MMA international guys. Fighters. International fighters. International fighters to, to mm -hmm. go over to Tiger and train there. Um, Use that as a, a warm, my warm-up camp because I thought uh, Tiger would be the best way to sharpen my striking, but more importantly, get into fight shape uh, quickly mm -hmm. to make sure because of the obviously the, the, the heat, the climate, um, the the variety of training. It was All a great way to you sort of sit yeah. there and just you just live and breathe. Look, I, I predominantly focused on conditioning and striking while mm -hmm. I was there. I then went to Texas 
uh, for a couple of weeks where I trained with uh, focusing on refining my jiu-jitsu skills with my coach, uh, Carlos Machado, mm. uh, who's the brother-in-law of Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, who's fighting um, um, in uh, UFC Liverpool. Nicest man in MMA. Absolutely. It runs in the, uh, the family, so... <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyway, I trained with Carlos for a couple of weeks and then I transitioned to Las Vegas. Um, and there I kind of, uh, hung out with one of my old, uh, uh opponents and, uh, sparring partners. Um, just had a mental blank, uh, Forrest Griffin. So yeah, you know, so, you know <laughs> did some training with um, yeah, Well, it's the constant blows to the head <laughs> and it's great for forgetting to do the dishes as well. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, you know, kind of hung out with Forrest and I hit up a few of the different gyms um, during that time. So, do, you know, that was really about refining um, the game, doing a lot of sparring with big guys out there, um, working on my cage work, all that sort of stuff. So I hit up, you know, I, I was going to try and I try to get to, to hook up with um, Frank Mir. I want to do some training with him. Um, Sergio Penas? Was he training under Sergio Penna then? In, um, in well, I think I know he was doing work with Drysdale, and that's oh, yeah. that's I, I I got the connection through Drysdale because mm-hmm. I'd met Drysdale. Forrest was training under Drysdale. Uh, Frank was doing some work with Drysdale, but he was prepping for, if I remember correctly, he was actually prepping for one of his um, may have been um, he was trying he was fighting big wrestlers, may have even been Brock Lesnar because he had these huge guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that he was training with. So I didn't get an opportunity because I just wasn't the right size and yep. he needed to work with guys his size. But I was training at the gym, the same place as, you know, he was and a couple of the other guys. So, but it was such an intense, you know, six to eight week camp. It just when I got back home, my shoulder literally was, I was in you constant. You couldn't ignore it anymore. Well, I was in constant agony. Mm. Like by the time I got home, like it was hurting while I was over there. And then the flight back, um, I don't know if the, the, the pressure or the break, it just kind of started, it was just 24 seven, I was in pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that last camp, the, literally my last sparring session, the week before, it's just given out on me. Like um, I could kind of use it, but I just lost all strength in it. And it, it was just um, mentally just drained. Playing on it your mind. Well, yeah. it just, and then, but knowing that it was there too, like carrying that into the fight, knowing that you, you know you've only so got one arm. So I ended up having to pull out of the fight because you know I saw some specialists. They recommended not doing it. We tried doing, um, getting uh, shot cortisone shots, yeah, cool. and then we that didn't work. We got laser guided cortisone shots. Yeah. We tried all sorts of stuff, and just nothing because it was not muscular. It mm. was actually the joint had basically fallen yeah. apart. Mante. Um, yeah, I'd lost all the cartilage. I'd started having adhesive capsulitis. The bicep tendon was worn. There was just a lot of different yeah. things um, going on. And it's just the, the the pain shots weren't working because it wasn't muscular. It was mm. actual, the, the connectivity and all that sort of stuff. So I pulled out, which and I had to have, you know, shortly after, about a month or two after that, because um, obviously the process to get surgery took a little yeah. longer back then. Um, so I ended up getting uh, shoulder surgery and I was pretty much out for 12 months. This all comes back to the question about nutrition. Is that it's right? still, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. we're getting to. Um, I was pretty much out for 12 months. And now that during that 12 months where I was not really Physically doing much active. training, mm. I was still eating the way I was when I was in camp. Now, when I, when I was in camp, 
because of the, just the level of training I was doing. As I said, I was training three times a day, just training like I like I was in, probably in the best shape of my life going into to this mm-hmm. fight, and then all of a sudden it stopped. But my eating didn't. Yeah, yeah. And because and that, I, obviously this, I didn't understand you. And that's the agony of of the sport you know yeah, people again don't see it. it's that it's that um you know tip of the iceberg kind of analogy you said before that you try to fight and prepare you know for such huge blocks of time and then a week out from the fight something will happen like that shoulder injury will just give out and that's all gone it's so hard to deal with as a fighter or you could be on the other end of it you could be your opponent who has to pull out the fight's off and it's just you've just had tunnel vision for three, four months, how long yep. it may be, you've dieted, you've just not worked, you haven't understood, you know, you've just focused solely on this one goal of stepping in and get the win and then injury or whatever may happen, yeah, happens. Yeah, it's, so, a, it's, it's heartbreaking. Anyway, back to, back to the diet. So anyway, so not only was I still eating the way that I was, uh, with the volume I was when I was in camp, mm. I started eating, like, like as the point you bring up, that mental. So because I can't train, I was like, I started eating more, like more pizzas and KFC and... Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, previously I could never break a hundred. Yeah. Like you know, I'd even tried to put on weight, you know, at some stages to kind of get heavy. I got up to about ninety-eight kilos. As I said, the amount of training I did, I'd just walk around anywhere from ninety-five to ninety-seven. Mm. And all of a sudden, I just one day, like I hadn't stepped on a scale in a year either. Yeah. I've stepped on a scale. I was one hundred and eight kilos, and then I've looked at myself in the mirror and I've gone. I did not recognize myself. Yeah. I'm like, I would, I would have probably been, no, I would have been, I would have met you before then, not actually met, but seen yep. you at jiu-jitsu comps around Sydney, you know, the New South Wales Federation Cups. Yep. But yeah, well, I've seen you uh, around a lot of jiu-jitsu tournaments uh, around the time when you probably, uh, you know, just come off that injury. And yeah, I remember you being a, a huge guy and you, you actually are a huge guy, but you like, you look a lot, a lot fitter now. Like you said, you know, you're probably in the, you know, the lightest you've ever been walking around. Um, so that was that was a catalyst, eh? Just stepping on those scales and yeah, seeing. Yeah, well, I you just saw them. myself, and then, you know, I mean, part of what hit it was, like you said, I'm a big guy, mm. so I I did I had I've got big shoulders, so I carried a lot of the weight well, which kind of hid yeah. a lot of what was underneath. But when I actually looked at myself, I kind of went, I've got to be honest, I'm fat. Yeah. You know, I'm I am, you know, to the point of I'm getting too obese, I'm getting to um, an unhealthy weight, and I'm like. I need to do something about this. I'm like, why has this happened? So I started looking at other athletes. I started looking at football players and um, boxers, and they were post, all, all post of them post career. They all ballooned up, and I'm like, why is this? Are we not taught the proper nutrition while we're training, mm. or do we not understand what we're doing to our bodies? And I realized I just didn't understand what I was doing. I didn't know what was going on. So I, I at first started with um, intermittent fasting, mm. so controlling. I start I, I look I started reading some books on it. I've just I, got into that myself, and yeah, and from what I'm hearing about it, my wife actually introduced it to me. Um, yeah, and it's got amazing help, but not only just for weight, but I mean, like they say, it's anti-aging, all kinds of stuff. And what intermittent fasting, just briefly for people, it's like it's about if you don't eat for about sixteen hours, basically, isn't it? The sixteen hours is the, well, the key. Is there's, the, the there's a couple of different um, eating uh, fasting methodologies. Mm-hmm. The most common one is what you're referring to is a sixteen-eight. Mm-hmm. So you have a sixteen-hour fasting early sleep. Yeah, sixteen-hour fasting window, eight-hour eating window. Most mm-hmm. people do it after dinner and then they have a late lunch because 
we naturally don't eat for eight, six to eight hours while we're asleep. And that's the only way I can do it. And I've got to leave the house straight away. I've got to have a, I don't know if I'm breaking the rules here, but I have a, like a strong coffee with a bit of coconut cream. No, no, that's, you that's fine. Fats. And then I can, if I'm busy and I'm active, I can make that 16 hour gap. You know, I'll get to work, get busy or go training, whatever it is, occupy myself for those first sort of four or five hours of the morning. And then I can eat by 11 o'clock or whatever it is. But if I'm up with my daughter and my wife and we're going to the park and getting a coffee and they're having breakfast, I can't do it. I need to I'll, eat. I'll explain, I can't be around. I'll, I'll explain why uh, you're having difficulties as we journey through my story here. <laughs> so I started looking at that. I, I, I first started with the, what was referred to as a daily fast. There's a guy called Brad Pylon. He wrote a book on, on fasting. So you basically would have dinner one night and then not eat till dinner the next night. So you'd 24-hour fast. Mm. Um, and the, the, it worked well as long as you didn't overeat in that meal where you fasted um sweet yeah yeah uh yeah we should be a bit longer i think no yeah i'm just saying sweet sorry um so yeah so it all started with uh, the 20 the daily fast i read a book by brad pylon where you'd fast for 24 hours you'd have dinner you'd not eat until the next day and i got really good at that that i could do I could skip that dinner. I could fast for 48 hours because as you did it more, your body got more accustomed and I would still be training during that time as well and I always seemed to have enough energy. Um, so I started looking at that and was reading up more on fasting, then discovered the 16-8 and they're saying the 16-out fast is more applicable to those doing you know, high-intensity training. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I'll, I'll switch it to that. And then on just one of the forums, someone goes... Um, you should read this book um, called Ultimate Diet Secrets um, by Dr. Greg Ellis. Mm-hmm. He goes, if you're interested in, in nutrition, I thought when he was directing me towards it that it was uh, in regards to intermittent fasting. So I'm like, okay. So I looked it up. I found the PDF online. I downloaded it. Um, and one of the things I did before I started reading it is I looked up the author because the last thing you want to do is, one of the things I do is whether I'm getting fitness advice or training advice or any sort of advice, I want to see that the person who's doing it has done it. So if they're giving me advice, they need to be following their advice. I like like to take the same approach to trainers. Absolutely. You like to be trained for something. If you're trained to compete and, you know, it's quite a serious sport, there's some consequences to it if you're not prepared properly, that... I love being trained by someone who's been there and done it because you just have this trust in what they're saying because yeah. the same as the other. Now, it, it, again, it, there can be some exceptions with training. There are some people who are better trainers than they are yeah, the actual yeah, yeah. competitors. So as long as they've got a proven track record mm. or they've done it themselves, I need, you need to have one of those two kind of errors. They've yeah. either got it, they've produced the talent yeah. and more than one. If you just created one person... It could have been the talent. It really. could have been the talent. If they've got a couple that have come through it's then you know it's the, the instruction training. yeah or they've been out there they've done it so they know what they're doing you, you can trust the, yeah. the advice the same thing i looked up the dr greg ellis there was a photo of him and i went you know what this is a 50 year old guy who's ripped i'll read the book mm-hmm. so i started reading it and it was actually about low carb um don't judge a book by its cover but you did yeah pretty much <laughs> 50 year old and ripped let's read it <laughs> um so he kind of same thing as the podcast. He told his life story in the mm-hmm. book, but as he's telling it, and he it goes through different diets, water fasts and vegan diets and uh, soup diets and high-protein diets, and yeah. he even talks about it was a period he got on steroids and totally honest through the yeah. book. 
and then he explains how he starts realizing he needs to start studying and looking into nutrition so he goes out gets a degree and it pretty much leads into the low carb mm. uh, arena so I, I decided um, about I think it was about 2012 I started doing low carb so I followed uh, his advice I started doing that and it just great results like I lost a lot of weight uh, uh, quickly I got back in shape I started having more energy um, and then from there I just I kept on the journey um, so the weight came off I started feeling good uh, I got into the best shape of my almost equal good shape as when I was competing mm. um, in the UFC I got into shape went to the world championships in jiu-jitsu the masters mm. um, I ended up getting silver I, I did get injured uh, the day before in the the absolute so I wasn't able to perform the the way I would have liked mm. in the final uh, no excuses the other guy won mm. um, but I still feel I was capable of more so you know it was yeah, a great show I'd been prime still like yeah, yeah I, I felt and I was um, as your age maybe not would suggest age and I was yeah, older, I, yeah I was yeah. in my 40s yeah, when I did that and I felt fantastic my the diet had helped my weight I was doing kettlebells and jiu-jitsu yeah. and Muay Thai and and doing all that and then just that continued journey I discovered keto and I started learning more about you know the the damage that processed foods and sugar does to your body, mm -hmm. um, how it feeds certain diseases such as cancers, yeah, yeah. Um, how it causes inflammation that it causes. Yep, the, the insulin causes uh, problems to the body, um, creates diabetes. Um, it shows that now they're looking at Alzheimer's as type three diabetes, and diabetes is a disease of sugar. Mm -hmm. So it just made sense to cut more and more out. And it just got to the point where, as I read more, I was trying different things. And I kind of have a, a kind of a modified carnivore keto diet. I do um, take some, I, I do supplement as well. I take amino acids. Mm -hmm. I take a couple of uh, multivitamin powders. And uh, again, it's, I've, I've always been, um, I like to back up what I'm doing. Like I have... So I take supplements. Um, I probably don't need them mm -hmm. from from my research, but the way I look at it is, if it's not hurting, yep. um, and it may be helping that I take it. Um, a lot of my research, also in regards to the, the glucose and the sugar, was also with cognitive impairment. So one of the things that um, we have to deal with as combat athletes is impact to the head. Mm -hmm. You know, concussions over years. Even if you're not seeing the concussions, we're getting small ones, we're getting hit into the head, we're, we're receiving cognitive damage. You may not be seeing the signs either while you're competing. No. But the, and yeah. even afterwards, you don't see the signs yourself. Mm. But, well, not always. Sometimes you do. And I, and I did. Like, I had times where I'd be, like, struggling to remember stuff or I, I'd kind of, uh, 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 and I'd get caught. Yeah. And then I'm like, what's going on here? You know, because during my fight career, one of the, the things that the reason I was uh, used so much by the UFC is so I was well spoken. I understood the sport when I was being interviewed by the press, who were trying to make us look bad because that's yeah. what the sport bloodthirsty. Yeah, bloodthirsty. I was able to put across an educated opinion. I was able to redivert their questions, make them not look at the sport in a negative yeah. way. Um, and as you know, I took that in, into my career now as a Fox analyst and yeah. the coach. And so a big part of 
being able to continue all this is having the the cognitive performance, the mental function yeah. to be able to evaluate fights, to remember stuff, Which to sugar review. Sugar and carbs were impairing. We were impairing, and then that's where I discovered that key, the you know the brain ran more efficiently on ketones, mm-hmm. and you know I also look at I also supplement with um, you know like supplements like choline, um, recetums, other. Uh, cognitive enhancers i've just been listening to oils uh, well mct oils um which uh, convert to ketones which provide the energy for the brain and that so yeah yeah, they're just the the nutritional um it's pretty much just taking coconut oil and then just taking out the bits that they use for energy i still like to even though i supplement with the mct i still like to use the coconut oil because it's the whole food source Mm -hmm. because a lot of times you want the combination of mcts uh, long chain fatty acids your your Mm -hmm. saturated fats together because the synergetic effect also works together a lot of publicity now the ketogenic diet and people obviously have trouble with it because they expect it to be quite easy transitional and do it relatively quick but you've done this over years and years and slowly modified it and you know gotten down to where you are now Uh, but yeah like everyone wants to be able to be ketogenic but it's a long process isn't it? and you, you your body's got to adapt it takes a while for it to adapt is that right absolutely you're correct yeah so when i did i did in stages so i just when i and again this was thanks to the the book the ultimate diet mm. secret they recommended doing a, a staged system you know first i got rid of processed sugars and then i got rid of refined breads and then i got rid of pastas and and i just slowly got rid of it to the point where i was now comfortable pretty much removing the majority um of refined carbs out of the system you know it's still okay to have like fibrous vegetables and and things like that um and then it just the journey continued but nowadays because of science you can actually do it faster than i did and the reason you can do it faster is ketones Mm. because now we have an oral so you can now buy ketone supplements yeah you know beta hydroxybutyrate and again Mm. You know, it's worth doing the research. There are a lot of products are out there. Um, I'm not sponsored by any. I use a few different ones here. Mm. I won't go into the details, but ketones, if you want to go into a, a nutritional ketosis. So ketosis originally was discovered through fasting. Mm-hmm. So when you fast, you're not getting any food into your body. So your body switches from a glucose burning system to a fat burning system. And that was discovered through fasting. So fasting is always the most effective way to generate ketones in your body. And they say that 16 hours, it it really does put the body into ketosis very effectively, more so than trying to stick to a ketogenic diet. Well, this is the, the, what I was going to, which I mentioned earlier, where you have issues where if you're around food, you get hungry. Mm. If you're not low carb and you're trying to do the 16-8, you still will get hunger cravings because the glu- uh, the carbs you're eating will convert to glucose, which create an insulin spike. Insulin will insist on um, you ingesting carbs. Every time you ingest carbs, it'll break down to glucose. And so the more glucose you have, then it's going to do another insulin mm. spike. And that's why fasting can sometimes struggle. When you switch to ketogenic diet and fast at the same time, it works better because... Your body no longer has an insulin spike, so it's a much more level playing field. So when you're around food, you're not getting mm. those hunger pains. And it's also like if I can just keep my if I can stay active, keep my mind active or whatever it may be, and just not think about food, I can I can 
I can cope okay. But it's when I'm stuck in traffic or you know twiddling my thumbs. No, not I just want to go out, almost out of boredom. It's the same when I'm cutting weight for a fight. It's a, I find it such a well, mental yeah. battle. Like if I think about, or as soon as I say, okay, I'm fighting in eight weeks, I'm going to tidy up my diet. I start craving macas and well, which I never eat anyway. But it's just it's like a. Well, it's because okay. it's, it's, it's the insulin me. response because what happens is because that's you, dropped you, my... well you haven't adapted mm. to keto you haven't become a fat burner you still need the 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 carbs to provide energy and that's why fighters get so cranky because if you look at the what they do all of them go to low carb in that particularly in that cutting phase mm. but they're not fat adapted so they get hungry they get cranky it's they hard. go through mood swings Whereas once you're keto adapted, you don't go through those swings. You yeah. don't get those hunger. Yeah, yeah. So um, intermittent fasting just actually happens as a natural part of the diet because you will eat mm. and then you're just not hungry. You have the energy. You can keep going through. You might have your coffee with a bit of MCT oil in the morning. Uh, and, and you can go through the whole day. So you without- suggest if, if I'm doing the intermittent fasting, not, not every day, yeah. maybe like two to four times a week I'll do it. Like I said, if I've got busy days, I get through a lot. If I got, if I don't have busy days, I just can't seem to be able to do it. If I was to do that, and then when I do break my fast, just have high fat food, low carb food, I'll just slowly have a good way of adapting to a low carb diet and being able to do the intermittent fasting easier. So well, when look, I do have if, the days where I all morning with my daughter, I can still be able to, you know, if you were to yeah, that fast, if you were to cut back on the carbs overall, yeah, and then easier. again more high fat. Mm-hmm. But what you can do to help the body and because there's what's called an adaptation phase mm-hmm. where the body needs to break down fats, your triglycerides, and convert them into ketones, which becomes your energy. Mm-hmm. While you're still a glucose body uh, burner, your body struggles, doesn't produce enough, and that's why you have problems. So this is where you can um, supplement with beta-hydroxybutyrate. So that's a, a beta-hydroxybutyrate. Is what uh, they, the ketone satchels are? Well, that's yeah, that's it's, it's yeah. a ketone. So yeah. you have... Um, uh, Acetyl acetate, uh, acetone, and beta hydroxybutyrate. They're your um, different ketones. So, beta hydroxybutyrate's the one that they can um, cre- formulate, put it into a powder. So, if you actually supplement with your helping your ketones, body adjust to that. Well, it's, what it's doing, it's just providing the energy. Yeah. So, it's providing the ketone energy. So, your body gets used to burning it, which helps the adaptation process and, and should help deal with the hang- hunger pangs. Yeah. Well, and Look, we, I could go for days about these. Yeah, yeah. I love to learn about. Like I said, through fighting, mixed martial arts, cutting weight. It's uh, it's as you get older, as a, as a fighter, you you realise it's all about the preparation, mental, your diet, not just getting in the gym and doing the skills work. It's the other stuff that's equally, if not more, important. Um, and another thing that you've gone that's is becoming a bit more mainstream now, but you're probably in, uh, onto it before many others was the whole like the Wim Hof, the the heat and cold uh, therapies. Um, so you've always been looking outside the box looking yeah. for ways to not only improve as an athlete but just have better health for longevity you know uh and just be you know feeling better day to day um and you've really like incorporated that into all your gyms and that now you've got cafes you've got saunas so really ice baths pretty holistic yeah. kind of approach to martial arts now where you're not just providing skills you're providing nutritional advice as well as recovery and you know ways of living for long like longevity and good health yeah yeah no look i I, obviously as a martial arts gym and having an mma program i want to create athletes that win you know Mm -hmm. competitors that's you know that that's a part of it but 
the, the reason, one of the reasons I've so enjoyed the martial arts is that holistic. I think it's about creating life skills. Um, the martial arts have created a mindset for me that have given me so many opportunities and the ability to take advantage of opportunities outside of the field of martial arts. And, um, and my, my striker coach, Matty Gardner, always uses that analogy about fighting such a great template and the lessons it teaches you to apply to life, you know, through adversity or, you know, the highs and the lows of the fight game are, are like, aren't like any other. I, I can't imagine, you know, the, um, so to be able to deal with those and work through those, they, they, they're going to give you skills that you can apply in any aspect of life and going to help you for sure. Yeah, no, that's that's correct. It does. It just, it helps with the mental attitude so much. And then, you know, we go to so much trouble to, to build the physical with our punches and kicks and chokes and throws. And then... A lot of times we ignore, you know, other parts of it. And so that's why, you know, you know, I make sure at my gym we have not only do we have low carb um, drinks and bars, we have kombuchas, which are great for your digestive mm, health. health. We have turmeric drinks at the the gym. And not only do we have the, the sauna, the ice bath, we have a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. Mm. Again, it's that the martial arts is here to help you with your sport it's here to help with your life it's a great way to let out stress it teaches you um, how to control yourself um, so when you become under high stress situations outside you know you've got the ability to deal with it um, but also i want to make sure my students live longer they live healthier longer mm. more fruitful lives happier in general and i think yeah. it's that's an element of mixed martial arts that really doesn't get a lot of airtime. You know, it's, you know, I think it's slowly changing now. With the, you know, I think the the UFC in Melbourne with Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm at the top of the bill, it really changed the mindset of a lot of MMA critics. You know, two yep. attractive, well-spoken women who were both professionals outside of the octagon. You know, in judo and boxing. Yeah, you know, like I said, well-spoken. It just changed that. You know, I guess the the human cockfighting, bloodthirsty. You know, knuckleheads getting there. You know, but the whole MMA scene sort of slowly changing. But that, but people are now starting to realize the whole martial art aspect to MMA it just helps the youth especially you know to be able to release that Look, build, I, build up anger or whatever you know, they may have but just teaches them respect and how to interact with different groups of people and as well as you know health and you know just living yeah just introduces so many positive you know uh, aspects to their life through through martial arts which that is slowly getting a bit more airplay which, which is great you know and gyms like your own like there it's uh it's doing great things for the sport yeah look it's just on my mat you i don't think there are many sports that have the diverse amount of students or, or competitors or trainers whatever you walks want to call them walks of life mm. on the mat yeah. like i have you know laborers to lawyers to doctors to accountants mm. to students there's just the diversity of the backgrounds that people come from and come together in the martial mm. arts really can't be beaten. And again, it's because it provides more than just the single physical activity of doing a martial art. It's a way of improving your life. So um, again, I think it's one of the best things you can do for your kids. I think all kids should have to do um, martial arts. If they did that, you wouldn't need anti-bullying programs mm. because people would be trained. They would realize um, it's not the way to act. It just yeah. helps you improve. You realize that 
you can't judge a book by its cover. The kid that you might want to bully, he might, yeah. You, know, you walk on a mat and you might come across a little librarian girl who think, oh, this little petite little thing. And next thing you know, she's putting you to sleep. So you can never, yeah, it makes kids think before they want to bully. And um, yeah, and they just change the whole mentality. But well, also, once, yeah, because once you're on the mat wrestling, like you said, you, you know, whether you're wrestling or kickboxing, you suddenly realize that you don't know what someone else knows. But also the culture of respect mm. would make it so that you don't want to bully. Yeah, exactly. Because you yeah. start respecting your yeah, training people partners. People walks of life. And, yeah, you, yeah. You, again, you don't judge them. Um, because again, a lot of times people are going through different, even like bullies. Like you mm. have to understand sometimes bullies do it not because they're bad people, but because they're, they're going suffering. through a bad, yeah. yeah, they're suffering. They're going through bad things. And I'm not justifying it, but yeah. you can't always judge what's going on. Uh, from the outside and again martial arts is just a great way to help you know mm. the kids or even adults and uh, anyone through life yeah no i agree i agree well mr sinisek the king of rock and rumble um we could just keep on going for, oh, yeah, for hours mate, on, on so many different topics that's why i was really excited to get you in here mate uh obviously the history of martial arts in australia the ufc but also you know we're not nutrition uh, you know lifestyle all kinds of things mate uh thanks for for coming on if you want to uh you know, give your gym a shout or anything coming up mate in in the world of cinesic well yeah look as i said at the start uh, once i start talking it's hard to uh, shut me up yeah. so hopefully you enjoyed it uh again like you said i've still got a lot of stories a lot of information uh maybe a couple of months down the track if anyone wants to hear any more you know leave some comments let us know what you want to hear about them you know maybe we pop back because again i always enjoy chatting um always busy again with uh ufc gyms a lot more opening up in uh across australia so we'll be looking for more coaches so if you're interested in that uh you can get in touch with me through facebook um of course my gym king's academy we're doing great things as i mentioned earlier one of the most diverse programs with uh jujitsu boxing wrestling uh mma muay thai um kids classes um, also the facility yoga, yeah, we have ha- hot yoga, yoga. Um, we have a weight a weights area hyperbaric oxygen chamber sauna ice bath um, everything you need in, in the train place so if you're out west uh, pop in check us out uh, you can find us online www.kingsacademy.com.au um, or you can find us on facebook as well just google king's academy of martial arts uh, and you'll find us we love having people coming who want to train, who want to improve their lives. We're there to help. Um, and again, if you're a UFC fan, check out Richie and myself every Thursday night on Fox Sports, UFC Fight Week. We love talking about the fights. We love breaking them down. Um, and hopefully you guys are enjoying the information that we're pro- providing. So, um, yeah, look forward to seeing you guys. Well, again, mate, thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure. Thanks for